So 1 John chapter 1, beginning with the 8th verse. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Well, may the Lord bless the reading and now the exposition of his holy word. In his autobiography, Mahatma Gandhi writes about stealing a bit of gold when he was 15 years old. Racked with guilt, he wrote a note, a written confession, and he handed it to his father. Gandhi writes, I was trembling as I handed the confession to my father. He was then suffering from a fistula and was confined to bed. His bed was a plain wooden plank. I handed him the note and sat opposite the plank. He read it through and pearl drops trickled down his cheeks, wetting the paper. For a moment, he closed his eyes and thought and tore up the note. He'd sat up to read it. He again lay down. I also cried. I could see my father's agony. If I were a painter, I could draw a picture of the whole scene today. It is still so vivid in my mind. Those pearl drops of love, Gandhi writes, cleansed my heart and washed my sin away. Right diagnosis. Wrong solution. Here's what I mean. Gandhi correctly recognizes his sin and a father's broken heart at his son's waywardness is indeed quite moving. The tears are appropriate and beautiful, but they cleanse no hearts. They wash no sin away. In the verses that are before us, John tells us who can forgive and cleanse our sins. God himself, verse 9, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need a taxonomy of sin. We need to diagnose sin carefully And we need to do so in order to avoid deception, judgment, and blasphemy. In these verses, John speaks of sin in three different ways. And his use of sin, sins, and sinned is not mere stylistic variation. If you look um, at my my headings, I thought of just titling my... uh, of giving my headings of sin, sins, and sinned. But I would think that, uh, you you know, did he actually work on his uh, headings at all? So I gave you something slightly more Baroque, right? Which is, these are little quotes. But notice, verse 8, we have no sin. Verse 9, confess, we confess our sins. Verse 10, we have not sinned. Well, first, in verse 8, If we claim we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves. 
Verse 9, if we confess our sins, then we are forgiven and cleansed. And then finally, if we say we have not sinned, we call God a liar. And if you call God a liar, you are blaspheming. So sin sins and sinned. And we need to get these right in order to avoid deception, judgment, and blasphemy. Well, we have no sin. Let's talk about the singular, sin in the singular, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, what does John mean when he speaks of those who say we have no sin? After all, I don't actually hear people say, do you have sin? I have sin. Thank you very much. We don't talk about having sin. Well, we don't speak that way, but people think that way all the time. When they speak about what's wrong, what they don't like about themselves, they tend to use some kind of language borrowed from health. They're broken. They're weak. They're unwell or they're troubled. Now, let's be clear. We're broken. We're weak. We're unwell and we're troubled, but we also have sin. In addition to speaking about these miseries, we should speak about the wickedness of our souls. We don't simply do wrong. We are wrong. Our hearts aren't just broken and wounded. Our hearts are warped and twisted. You know, we tend to characterize people by what they do. We say he's a thief because he stole something. But God says he stole something because he has the heart of a thief. We not only commit sins, we have sin too deep in our being. And when God looks in our hearts, he sees our wicked thoughts and desires. He also sees that we have diff- uh, wicked attitudes, habits. Now, John will say in First uh, John chapter three, verse five, he will say, "You know that he, that is Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin." Singular. He takes away sins, plural, and in him there is no sin. Singular. In great contrast to Jesus, even if you have never actually murdered someone, which I assume is true of all of us, but I don't know, you still have the heart of a murderer. You still have the heart of a murderer. Whereas the Lord Jesus neither murdered, nor did he have the heart of a murderer. There was no, he had no sin in him. So John is talking when he talks about sin He is talking about disordered desire, the inward attractive, the inward feeling that we have in the presence of sin that makes sin to us attractive and delightful and enticing. You are wicked to the core. Now, perhaps you find this analysis of your heart offensive. If you do, then I have even more offensive news. If you disagree 
with this analysis, then you're deceiving yourself. You're lying to yourself. Proverbs 30 verse 12 speaks of those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Don't be one of those people. Recognize that you have sin. The corruption of our nature by the fall of our first parents remains in us all. Even those of us who are Christians, even the holiest person of Covenant Church Fayetteville, I won't name her because I don't want to embarrass her, but even she has wickedness in her heart. You know, it's interesting, the Westminster Confession of Faith speaks of all the motions uh, are truly and properly sin. All the motions of sin, all the motions of our corrupt nature are truly and properly sin. Well, why did the Westminster Assembly bother to talk about it? It's a question at the heart of the Reformation. And it's something that our 2020 uh, study report uh, in the Presbyterian Church in America makes clear. You see, the Roman Catholic Church held, as they say in the Council of Trent, which was held in the 17th century, that those who resist manfully the inner incentives to sin can still live lawfully. That is to say that you can have all of these inward corruptions, but you're not sinning. You're not, you're not, it's not sin. Instead, they, they, they say the incentive to sin is not truly and properly sin in those born again, but say instead that it is of sin and inclines to sin. So the movement of my appetite towards something wicked is not in itself an offense. Now, here's what's really interesting is that the council forthrightly recognizes that them saying that, the, that sin in us in this way, this inward inclination towards sin is not, um, is not itself sin. They recognize that in the council itself, they recognize that they are speaking contrary to what the apostle says. That, you know, though, though the apostle says sometimes that this incentive is sin, we hold that it's not. Now, they may be thinking of the apostle Paul in Romans 7, 8, he writes, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin, singular, sin lies dead. Paul is saying there that I think I'm all right. But then somebody tells me, you know, you need to be obedient to your parents. And the first impulse of my heart is, no, uh-uh, can't tell me what to do, right? So there's a sin that just erupts inside me. It's this inward orientation towards wickedness. Now, you may think that this is kind of, you may think two things. One, Jay is showing that he's a philosophy professor because this is all too technical for me. And then two, why does it matter, right? So yeah, I'm a philosophy professor, but this, these kinds of distinctions are important because once you actually look inside yourself, you realize Jesus is my only hope. Jesus is my only hope. When I am presiding at the Lord's table tonight, if I say something that I think, you may think it's the most boring thing you've ever heard, but if I think that it's eloquent or something, then even in administering the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, I could be guilty of the sin of pride. 
I know that about myself. And you know that about yourself too. And instead of that being depressing, it's actually liberating because it throws us on the only, the, the only, into the arms of the only one who can save us, the Lord Jesus himself. We do not sin once or twice a week. We are drenched in sin. We haven't put our toe in the water of sin. We are swimming in its waters. We're, we're drinking it in. Uh, you're, you are the problem of your life. That's what you need to realize. I am the problem of my life. And yet Jesus loves us. He loves us not because we're almost pretty good, right? We're almost pretty good. No, no, no. He loves us in spite of the fact of our deep wretchedness, in spite of our wickedness. And also that means that your sin does not surprise me. And my sin should not surprise you. It's not to excuse it or to commend it, but it is to say that we sober-mindedly recognize this morning we have sin. So sin, we must say it. Now let's consider sins, sins in the plural. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Simon Gathercole in his marvelous book, Defending Substitution, an essay on atonement in Paul, emphasizes the importance of seeing when the word sin or sins is used. For example, uh, take a look at 1 Corinthians, you don't have to turn there, but at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth, for I... um, I, you know, I preach the gospel to you. And then in verse three, he says, I delivered to you what was of first importance. What is to the apostle Paul the first of first importance in the gospel, the message of salvation in Jesus? What is it? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And Gathercole observes that Paul does not say Christ died for us. Christ died for me. Instead, Gathercole insists, quite rightly, that we should think about what Paul meant when he said Christ died for our sins. It's each individual transgression, each individual wrong that you have done. That is what Christ died for. And because Jesus died for each individual sin that you committed, you know that he died in your place. How does that work? If Paul said, well, Christ died for us, then somebody could say, well, Christ died over there just to show us his love. And Christ did show us his love in dying for us, but Christ died for our sins means that he stood in our place to receive the punishment for the individual sins that we committed. That's why we confess as a church our sins in the plural and why we have a time of silent confession where even I come and I, you know, I go back there and I, I confess my sins, my individual transgressions to the Lord. 
Now, this may seem, yet again, like depressing news. Oh no, my friends. It's the best news in the world. Because John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice that John connects the promise of forgiveness with God's character. The very thing that should make you terrified as an unbeliever should be the source of your greatest confidence as a believer. Here's what I mean. If you're an unbeliever this morning, then God is holy and just, and he has promised to punish wrongdoing. He's internally constrained by his own holy nature to punish wickedness. And so you will appear before him, if you don't confess your sins and cry out for mercy, you will appear before him unforgiven and uncleansed, and he will send you to hell forever. But that same character that is to the wicked an occasion for terror is to us a great joy because God has promised to forgive those who trust in Christ Jesus. It is for the sake of his own name. There is no one on earth who cries out to the Lord and says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love that the Lord himself does not hear. Why? Because he has said he will do it. God will keep his promises in great grace and glory to the church, but in wrath, judgment, and glory to the wicked. We see this all throughout the Bible. I chose one example that should be familiar to you. When King David violates another man's wife and conspires to get that man killed, he eventually takes her to be his own wife and seems to think that all is well. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven says, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And they all lived happily ever after. No, the next sentence of that verse, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And in the next chapter, Nathan the prophet confronts King David by telling him a story of a rich man who steals a poor man's beloved lamb in order to prepare a meal for a visitor. And David, blind to his own sin, totally hypocritical, pronounces judgment on this hypothetical man. Then David says, sorry, then Nathan says to David, you are the man. You are the man. David's next recorded words are these. I have sinned against the Lord. And the first thing that Nathan says to David is, the Lord also will put, has, has put away your sin. You shall not die. David behaved shamefully, wickedly, treacherously, cruelly, and ignobly but he confessed his sins. He confessed his sins. And as 1 John 1, 9 makes us 
think will happen did in fact happen. The Lord has put away your sin. He has cleansed you and you shall not die. There is forgiveness. Now that's not to say that David did not have to deal with the consequences of his sin in this life. It's not to say that everything was perfect thereafter, but it is to say that he confessed his sins and God was faithful and just to forgive him of his sins and to cleanse him of his unrighteousness. What about you? You may think that you are in a pretty stable bartering position with God, that you don't do, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm you know, better than Jay Bruce, uh, you know, low bar. Um, but then you've got to ask yourself, why are you so miserable? Well, if you think you have to get, the only way to get to heaven is based on your own performance, then if you have any self-awareness whatsoever, you will know that you don't have a shot. And so you need to turn away from the excuses that you give yourself for your bad behavior and cry out to the Lord on your knees and ask for mercy. It may well be that you have to confess your sins to others, but you most certainly have to confess your sins to the just judge of all the earth who promises to forgive you as you confess. So confess your sins. We should confess our sins. So sin, sins, and now sinned. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. God takes very seriously the claim that we have not sinned. And John does too. Notice in verse eight, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And that's really bad. But here in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we say God is a deceiver. We call God a liar. It's not just self-deception, it's blasphemy. Now, how... What's, what's John's thinking here? I think that he's saying that we call God a liar if we say we have not sinned because God clearly communicates to us what he requires of us. And so if we disobey his clearly given rules for life and we say, meh, I've not sinned, then what are we saying about God? We are saying that God tells us this is how you live a life that is good, holy, and pleasing to me. And we say, don't listen to God. Don't listen to God. God says, forgive your enemies, but whatever. And his word is not in us. If God's word is not in you, if you're not reading your Bible and meditating on it, then you will not know what God requires. And you may think that the things that you are doing are quite acceptable to God. Maybe that he really likes them. But give yourself the opportunity to be convicted by the Holy Spirit as you read the Bible to see how you should live differently. You know, God condemns people who say they've not sinned. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah. You say... I am innocent. 
Surely his anger is turned for me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. Do not let God bring you to judgment for saying you've not sinned. Confess your sins. Now, your sins have a way of coming to light, even if you do your best to walk in darkness. On Thursday, July 23rd, 2009, the British Library released to the public a 30,000-word memoir by Anthony Blunt. The memoir had been in a steel container for 25 years, and in it he recounts, quote, the biggest mistake of my life. Blunt was a preeminent art historian. He served uh, first King George VI and then Elizabeth II for 27 years as the keeper of the Royal Art Collection, one of the preeminent art collections in the world. The Queen knighted Blunt for his service in 1956. He also served as the uh, University of London uh, Professor of the History of Art. He published widely. His 1953 book, Art and Architecture in France, is currently in its fifth edition. And um, he apparently is an expert on a French painter that I, I've never heard of. But that's not what interests us. What interests us is from the 1930s into the 1950s, Blunt betrayed his country. He was a spy for the Soviet Union. He recruited spies for the Soviet Union. He warned spies of counterintelligence activities against them, and he helped two notorious spies, Guy Burgess and Donald McLean, flee Britain. Blunt had spied for the Soviet Union for years, and he was granted immunity from prosecution when he confessed in 1964. He was also told that the government would keep his secret safe for 15 years, and the British government did so. But then, on November 15, 1979, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher answered a question by two members of Parliament and identified Sir Anthony Blunt by name. Well, Queen Elizabeth II stripped him of his knighthood. Trinity College, Cambridge, removed him from being an honorary fellow. And he resigned in the, the British Academy, as a fellow of the British Academy. Now, in his memoirs, he calls the treacherous betrayal of his country the biggest mistake of my life. As though it was a uh, two plus two is five, or pi r squared, which it's not, or pi r squared is uh, the area of a triangle. You know, it was a, it was a mistake. That's his take. But here's what Professor Anthony Glees has to say. Quote, not a word of genuine remorse, not a hint of repentance for the damage inflicted on his country in a lifetime of treachery, not a mention of the brave people he betrayed to Stalin's torturers. The only regret ever felt by the traitor, Anthony Blunt, was the fact that he was eventually found out. In her book, Anthony Blunt, His Lives, Miranda Carter says that Marxism was for Blunt a substitute for religion raised by seemingly Christian parents 
we know from 1 John that Blunt called God a liar through his life. He walked in darkness. And then at the end of his life, he could not bring himself to make a proper confession. He could not walk into the light. Don't make the same mistake. You have sinned. I have sinned. We know these things. We must step out of the darkness and walk into the light. Hell is real and God will not be mocked. And we must think about the taxonomy of sins. Sin, sins, and sin. Sin. If you say you have no sin, you only deceive yourself. Look into your heart and see the disordered nature there. Sins. Confess your sins with great confidence that God has promised to forgive you. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And finally, sinned. Say that we have sinned. Do not call God a liar. Read his Bible. Dwell deeply, richly in his words. Well, tonight we're looking at uh, Proverbs 28, 13 to 14. So please join us this evening as we consider it. Listen to it now. This, I'll read this and I'll close. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Friends, do not hide your sins. Do not pretend that they are not there. Confess, acknowledge them, and receive forgiveness. Do not harden your hearts before the Lord. Honor the Lord and receive his blessing. God is more willing to forgive us of our sins than we are willing to confess them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would work deeply and richly in all our hearts, that we would not conceal our transgressions, but we would confess our sins and forsake them, turn away from them. We pray that we would strive to honor you in all the ways that we speak and act and think and feel. And we pray that you would work holiness, righteousness, and soft hearts in us all. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.